If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. EmailToolTester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis and they have a look back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I have Stephanie Swingle, CMO at Mizzen in Maine. Stephanie started her career as a consultant, went back to business school at Harvard Business School, and then went into CPG, and eventually made the pivot recently to Mizzen in Maine. Mizzen in Maine puts performance fabrics in men's shirts, the shirts that we have to wear to the office and with ties and all those things that are so constrictive. But they found a way to put stretch, moisture wicking, and make these shirts wrinkle-resistant and easy to wash in the laundry. So today on the show, we talk about Mizzen and Maine as a challenger brand. What does that mean? A couple of crazy campaigns that they're just recently released in the last year, and a little bit more about Stephanie's perspective on marketing a challenger brand. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Stephanie. Well, Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to talk with you. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to learning a lot about Mizzen and Maine. But before we get to that, let's talk about your background. And you're the CMO at Mizzen and Maine. Where did you start your career and, and, and 
how'd you end up there? It's a great question. Um, one I think about a lot myself. I really have always had a passion for consumer psychology. I was a psychology major in undergrad and just have always thought it's really interesting to understand how people t- tick and how they interact with the world around them. But I wasn't really sure how to channel that coming out of college. So I did what I like to say a lot of lost undergrads do and wound up in consulting partly because it seemed like a great way to learn from different companies and industries, but also because the travel seemed really fun. It gave me a pretty strong quantitative and strategic foundation. Also a lot of um, airline and hotel points. That I had. <laughs> yeah, um, They say when you start consulting, you get really excited about gaining all the status. And then over time, you get excited about losing it because that means that you know over time, you're not having to travel as much. But, you know, I I really missed being connected to the consumer. I'd had some advertising internships in undergrad. I also worked on a couple of projects within the consumer product spaces. And I found that that really was what was most exciting about exciting about work to me. So I looked around trying to understand how I could really overlap this kind of strategic and quantitative foundation with the interest that I had in marketing and creative and consumers and came across CPG. I went back to business school, to Harvard Business School specifically, uh, with the goal of transitioning to CPG. I'm sure you've probably heard this storyline before. <laughs> I think I even wrote about working at Frito-Lay in my admissions essays. It probably <laughs> tips my hand a little bit on being too hyper-focused, but that's actually what I did. I went to work for Frito-Lay after business school. Right. And I found that it was just a phenomenal training ground for people who really liked combining the quantitative and the creative. You get to own the PL of a brand, which is pretty unique and exciting. And that's right. something that I think I really found interesting and and taught me a lot in terms of how to interact with physical brands in the consumer space. Got it. Yeah. What was the spark that, that drew you to Mizzen in Maine? Uh, you know, going from a we'll get to this too, but the, you know, going from a big, big consumer package goods like PepsiCo and Frito-Lay to a challenger brand. It's, it's a big change. It definitely was. Um, I think even bigger than I'd imagined. And I think what really drove it was having a lot of you know friends and classmates who were working in these digitally native companies. And I was just astounded by the level of real-time insights that they had access to. And being in a large company, you do get a high degree of you know, consumer insights reports, but they're different. They're more macro level. Um, and a lot of the data that you're getting on how consumers are any, interacting with your product comes from retailers. So there's some level of disaggregation there. When you're working in a digitally native company, you have a much more direct level of access to that. And I just thought that was so cool. I think at the same time, there was an entrepreneur who I really deeply respected, who's pushing me to consider moving to an earlier stage company. And he kind of compared joining a startup to boarding a rocket ship in terms of the pace of growth and opportunity. I think back to it and I wonder if some of that's also the possibility for catastrophe. <laughs> but I like to focus on the former, just that you know, you really can grow your career and grow your exposure and your experience at such a you know faster pace. Right, right. Well, I mean, yeah, I would tend to agree just based on the folks I've interviewed, there's great foundational learnings at large companies. But I think the the smaller companies provide a richness that it's it's hard to find in a big company, especially as this is just my opinion. But as like talent and development budgets have been slashed to some degree, it's hard to find those opportunities. Well, can you tell us about the Mizzen and Main story for those that maybe haven't come across you? I don't know how because I think I'm retargeted. 
everywhere on the internet by Miz and Maine. Yes, but we do have some international custom, you know, international listeners that might not have seen the brand yet. That's true. And I, I love telling our founder story in part because it's so relatable and then such a perfect fit to our direct-to-consumer identity. So the story goes something like this. You know, Several years ago, our founder, Kevin Lavelle, um, was walking to a meeting in Washington, D.C., and he looked across the street and saw this guy running into a building. And this guy you know, just looked terrible. He was totally drenched in sweat. I think if you've spent any time in D.C. in the summer, you probably know how he yeah, goes. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, you know, his shirt was coming untucked. It was sloppy. And the irony of the situation really caused Kevin to pause because he realized that this man was probably going to an important meeting if he were going to hustle through that humidity. But his sweaty shirt really wasn't going to do him any favors in it. And I believe he thought about this for a while and then kind of had this light bulb moment about fabric. And he'd seen athleisure really taking off. And with it, there was kind of a familiarity growing with performance fabric. And he realized that if the fabric, the power of the world's best best athletes could make its way into athleisure, it could really do wonders for a traditional wardrobe. So he became really fixated on improving the dress shirt, specifically through this change in fabric. We know that dress shirts are one of the most constricting part of a man's wardrobe, which is really unfortunate because men spend such a huge chunk of their lives in them. (laughs) And, you know, when we talk to men about traditional dress shirts, they talk about like restriction and discomfort and wanting to get out of it as soon as possible. So there was clearly a lot of room for improvement here. But as you can imagine, it's hard to make a dress shirt that looks nice with a fabric that doesn't have a lot of structure. So luckily, Kevin's a really persistent guy. And I don't know how many fabrics he went through. I imagine it being hundreds. But eventually, he found one that worked. He um, swore a tailor to secrecy and had her fashion the fabric into a dress shirt, wore it home. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story is that the moment that he really realized he was onto something was that when he walked into the door, his wife didn't realize he was wearing one of his prototypes. And that's kind of how our company was born. That's funny. That's great. And that that was one of my first thoughts when I, and I, I haven't donned a Mizzen and Main shirt yet, but when I was reading about the company, the first thing you think about are, you know, how do you, how do you get the structure of the shirt right? You know, it needs to still look like a dress shirt at some level. But anyway, that that reaction from his wife said it all. So. Yeah, it's perfect. And I think you nail one of our, our big marketing challenges is that the more we talk about how different the fabric is, I think the more that alarm bell might go off in a consumer's mind of, is this going to look good? Like, is it going to look right. like what I wear to the gym? So I think that's partly why it's so important for us to have a lot of the spokespeople, the lifestyle imagery, and even our brick and mortar presence to really counteract some of those concerns and show consumers that it looks in every way just better than their traditional dress shirt. Got it. Yeah. And so you guys, did I want to confirm, you, you started online as like a direct brand. Is that, That's right. Yes. I, yeah. We, we started okay. as a direct brand um, out of Kevin's guest room for a really long time. I think he and his wife were kind of packing and flipping the clothes themselves. And at the time, it was a really efficient way to start because you don't have those overhead costs of a brick and mortar store. And right. when we started, you know, several years ago, the online digital marketing channels were really cheap. So compared to rent, mm-hmm. you were able to access those customers on a really cost-efficient basis. Gotcha. And and you, I think I came across the brand a couple years ago in Nordstrom. And so you've got retail distribution and large department store, you know, a premium one at 
at that. But and you've now opened your own brick and mortar stores, I believe. Is that right? Yes, that's right. It's I think one of the really exciting things that we're getting to um, experience as a brand. And you hit on two really important channels for us. A lot of the wholesale relationships that we have have not only allowed us gain just allowed us to gain distribution, but have allowed us to gain, I think, a sense of relevance and validity. When you think about the consumer landscape now, there's this sort of swirling of Instabrands that's happening and consumers don't really know or don't have a high degree of confidence in the quality that they might get from these companies that are advertising only online. And when they encounter you in a Nordstrom or in, for, in our instance, in a specialty store or in a golf pro shop, it assigns that validity to it where they can see the physical product. But we also have that stamp of approval from a buyer that they know and respect. Got it. Got it. What drove you to your own retail locations? I mean, a lot of direct to consumer or direct brands are doing that. What was it about owning your own physical space? I love to say that what's old is new again in marketing. (laughs) And um, part of that comes down to marketing channels. So you see these direct to consumer brands, ourselves included, going back into TV and print um, and these more traditional marketing pieces. But that also applies to retail. And I think there's a couple of really key factors. At least this is what we're seeing. The first is um, acquisition efficiency. And then the second is brand experience. So when we dig into the first one, customer acquisition costs are a little bit more mathematical. So looking at Mm -hmm. it at a really high level, when a company rents a physical storefront, to a high degree, what they're paying for is access to the approximate foot traffic. And in areas with a high number of motivated shoppers passing by on a normal basis, for instance, you know, Soho in New York, that rent can be quite high. And I think I kind of touched on this a little bit, but you know, several years ago, e-commerce companies could largely bypass that physical store rent because it was so much more cost efficient to access traffic from a digital channel like Facebook than to access physical foot traffic. And then you also had that overhead fixed cost tied to retail. Mm-hmm. But as these auction-based platform algorithms have shifted, the competition for ad inventory has grown and we've acquired... That we already acquired those easiest to convert customers. So, you know, if you're really in the market for a better dress shirt, we were probably able to acquire you quite quickly. And if you're somebody who's a little bit more reticent, we're going to have to spend more to acquire you on those channels. And I think that combination of factors is making digital ad channels less cost effective relative to physical retail rent. And mm-hmm. for us, we have a couple of interesting, unique layers that add on to this. The first is that for all I can tell you about how our shirts feel and how easy they are to care for, we find time and again that the biggest unlock for consumers is that moment of try on because that's really where guys, you know, start to understand how the fabric feels on their skin. They get that these shirts aren't going to bunch up or constrict and, you know, what it means for them to feel cool under a jacket or on a long commute. And then you also have that friction of online sizing. I think just. And I say this as, you know, with my own experience as a shopper, it's difficult to take that leap to trying a new brand online when you're not sure how it's going to fit. And combined with those two, in a lot of ways, it's easier easier for us to acquire a customer in person than online. So there's kind of that whole acquisition piece of it. But the second, and, you know, I think from a marketing perspective, even more exciting component is the brand experience. And, you know, being able to bring your brand to life in a physical space is just such a cool thing as a marketer. And it means different things for different brands. So for us, I think it's about providing a space to our customers that really reflects both their personality and their shopping needs. 
we know that customers are really, really busy. So our layout kind of lends itself to an efficient shopping experience. It's uncluttered. We try to be really informative with it and have easy to access inventory so they're not having to dig around. But we also know that a lot of our customers find shopping kind of stressful. They don't really love it. <laughs> shopping therapy is something right. that really you know transcends to our customer. So we've tried to build build a space that they can relax in and that feels fun and natural to the environment that they're in. And, you know, in some places that means a bar with couches and TVs. We have a shuffleboard in our Fort Worth store and our Atlanta pop-up. We actually had a secret door through the dressing room that led to a mound <laughs> where they could clock their pitch speed in the shirt. And of course, there's parts of that that show the ease of our shirt and kind of the functional benefits of our shirt. But part of it's also just engaging with them in a new way that feels kind of on brand and fun to them. Yeah. No, those are great. Those are great examples too. Yeah. And guys, at least I can't stand shopping. So you have to make it fun for me. For You're sure. not alone for sure. It's interesting. <laughs> we, um, we can look at some of the shopper data from retail and we actually see that a high percentage of our brick and mortar customers were acquired online. And it's mm -hmm. interesting. You think about that initial acquisition point might make more sense in person. But what we're really seeing is that even once um, our customers are familiar with our brand and they know our sizing, to some degree, a lot of them prefer to actually shop in brick and mortar. So even right. you know these consumers who don't necessarily love the shopping experience are getting something out of that face-to-face -face interaction. Oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Do you, I mean, just a quick follow-on question. I mean, if you were starting over today with a, a different you know, a different company or a different brand or, or, you know, at an early stage, even at Mizzen and Maine, do you think it, you think online acquisition channels still make sense in the early days? And it's just more of a, as you mature and as you, you get that first set of customers, like you said, the easier to convert that you have to start adding these other channels. Or do you feel like the ad inventory itself now is just so expensive that it might make sense to start that earlier? I think it depends on a few factors. Partly, I think it depends on the product and what those natural barriers to conversion look like online. For something like a dress shirt, it might make sense to invest in brick and mortar earlier than it necessarily did in mm -hmm. the past. For something that has a little bit less size and consistency from brand to brand, like socks has a lot more kind of elasticity right. of brand, that might be a little bit less important. Still, I think there is something to be said to in investing in digital first and really kind of proving out your product and getting all that direct data that you can when you see how someone's interacting with your website. Right. But I, I certainly believe that the case to be made for brick and mortar happens earlier in this day than it, it did probably five years ago. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's interesting. And you bring up another point that I think probably gets lost in the digital component a lot is that it's not just efficient, but it's a great learning channel because of the feedback that you get so quickly. It is. The so testing and learning and iteration that you can do on a, in a digital format is really phenomenal. And I think with with yeah. our kind of internally managed team, we're able to make adjustments in retail, but just the physical changes have to happen a bit more slowly, especially if you have a broader retail yeah. footprint and you're trying to execute a change across a number of stores. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, let's talk about marketing campaigns because you've got some really doozies out there right now. <laughs> that's such an old word, but it, I think it fits. <laughs> yeah, so you recently launched one, a series of textile dysfunction ads that really are poking fun at the erectile dysfunction pharmaceutical ads, which I think all guys cringe at every time we see them. Girl, so, <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I know me and my wife make fun of the bathtub ones in particular, but when did, where did that idea come from and, and how's it going, I guess, with the campaign? Yeah, we've had a lot of fun with this campaign. And, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning that it was pretty risky for us because we didn't want to seem like we were poking fun at a condition, but, you know, rather parenting the frequency and some of the sameness that underlies that advertising. So you've described it really well. And, the idea had somewhat serious roots and that, you know, men really do suffer from their dress shirts. And it sounds kind of funny to say, but again, when we talk to them about their thoughts and their perceptions of the category, they reference feeling imprisoned by these restrictive and super fussy pieces of clothing. And we wanted to communicate how crazy it is for them to settle for this that experience and something that they're spending such a meaningful portion of their life in. But we wanted to do it in a way that was funny and reinforces the fact that we as a brand think differently. We develop all of our creative in-house, and I'm so lucky to work with one of the most phenomenal creative minds, um, Richard Ross, our creative director. And he directed the video and just did an exceptional job of describing that pain point in a way that, you know, with that strong attention to detail in parody so that, you know, it comes across just communicating the craziness of, you know, of suffering through these ineffective dress shirts, but also is funny (laughs) and engaging to watch. And one of the challenges that we see with TV is that revenue attribution is difficult. So when you're used to marketing on Facebook and Google, you have those immediate feedback loops of how things are performing. And with TV, it's a lot harder, um, especially for a company like ours that sees most of the traffic driven by offline media coming through on mobile, but a lot of the conversion happening on desktop. So one of the most popular ways to attribute revenue on TV is by actually tagging the spike analysis on traffic. So when you see these big spikes in traffic that correspond with a TV spot running, you sort of mark that traffic and then follow it through to conversion. When consumers switch devices, you lose that read. So for us, mm-hmm. it's difficult to really attribute revenue. And we look at high-level metrics like general organic revenue. We look at social engagement. And then we also looked at look at earned media because that's a great reflection of our ability to kind of outpunt our coverage with our media budget. And across all of those metrics, we're seeing really good response with this ad, which is just you know super fun to see. Yeah, it definitely breaks through. That's for sure. Another campaign, and I can't get the high kick out of my brain, um, but but you're using Phil Mickelson, pro golfer, and you somehow convinced him to dance for you. So you got to tell us about how this all unfolded. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, the Kantar podcast now. 
Yeah. Well, first, thank you for asking me about this because it's one of my favorite experiences to talk about. If Phil has been a really good partner from the start and he's, you know, he's super enthusiastic about our product, which is critical, but he's also willing to take risks, which was especially important for this commercial. I think the moment where we knew that this partnership was going to be a good one was when he wore one of our long sleeve button downs on course before we'd even locked into a partnership. And we were like, all right, you know, there's some potential here. But you know, still, I think this commercial was a stretch. And it was a moment that really reinforced the value of having an in-house creative team because the trust is so inherent there. I don't think that this necessarily would have come to fruition in a larger company and specifically one with an outsourced creative agency because so much is lost in translation between an agency and a brand team and leadership. But when you're all working together, you lose a lot of that friction that can impede some of the riskier ideas. So it was a lot easier to kind of sell in internally. But in terms of selling Phil on the idea, we had a couple of advantages. (laughs) And first, something that you might not know and that our video probably didn't quite do justice on is that Phil's actually a great dancer. (laughs) And uh, we had base choreography for the dance. But I think most of the video that you see really are his freestyle moves. And the worm and the high kick, that's not CG. He's really doing that. He really did that. He really did that. And there's some like the balls flying at him in the background. A lot of that was kind of digital and post-production, but all of the moves are completely his own. And I think second, like most things that we do at Mizzen, we had a really, really short timeline between ideation and launch. And to this day, I'm not sure that Phil fully realized that we were serious about the concept. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't really give him time to reconsider because we filmed the entire ad in about an hour. So, you know, he showed up and we were right into filming. I think it speaks a lot to him that he was able to have so much fun with it. And I think that's a big reason why it resonated so well is that that fun and that personality shows through. And that, you know, as much as anyone's going to look awkward dancing in that environment, he really shows that comfort in its own skin that you know ties back to our functional benefits but also makes it fun as a consumer to watch and engage with well i love it and now knowing that he really did get his foot that high in the air is amazing to me. Oh, I sorry I, I didn't mean to interrupt no no go ahead go one ahead. of the other things that i think is kind of interesting is you know we've learned this from people who are better dancers than we are is that there's two methods of a high kick And, you know, one goes out and one goes in. And the method that Phil does is actually the harder of the two. So not only is he able to get his foot really high, but he's able to do it with this kind of technical degree of excellence. That I think is a a pretty fun little (laughs) soundbite. Well, well, if golf doesn't reward him, we know where to find him next. So on the dance floor. Very true. (laughs) That's funny. Well, so, I mean, athletes seem to be playing a big role in your marketing mix because there's some connection with JJ Watts and others. So what's, when did that start and what's driving that? That's a great question. It's one we talk about a lot internally. Our connection with athletes emerged really naturally. I think in part because athletes are this population of adults who spend a lot of time in athletic wear. And because of that, the contrast with an uncomfortable dress shirt is even more severe. So they're, you know, comfortable with athletic fabrics, but also integrating them into a more traditional category might seem more intuitive to them. We have about a thousand pro athlete customers purchasing our shirts. So there's clearly this deep resonance there that translates well into marketing. And when we think about, you know, what makes an ideal brand representative, you want somebody who feels authentically, truly excited about your product. So that kind of checks that box. 
But we also look for people who embody certain key elements of our brand personality. And for us, I think that's comfort. So, you know, comfort with themselves, comfort with their skill sets, and of course, in their wardrobe. And then you want somebody who has a really strong degree of relevance with your consumer. So for us, the athletes we've worked with kind of check all of these boxes. And especially as a small company, they just help us stand out and really deliver a strong degree of credibility that might be difficult to earn on our own, especially in you know digital-only channels that we were working primarily and early on. So JJ Watt has been just was probably one of our initial big moves within the marketing space to kind of designate us as a real brand in that sea of brands who you might be earlier on and might not have the same level of you know quality and service associated on the back end and that validity is really important i think you you can earn that validity in a lot of ways you can earn it through traditional advertising vehicles that have a higher fixed cost you can earn them through a brick and mortar presence, through wholesale partnerships, or through spokespeople. And I guess we kind of attacked that across all of those different ways. Well, I mean, the use of athletes as endorsers or influencers, or even core customers, like having a thousand of them is amazing. You're really taking a playbook out of the textbook, what's called challenger brand method of trying to create fame around your product and brand. And so I applaud you for that. I don't know if it was by design, you know, having looked at that in the past or just kind of pivoted your way there eventually. But um, I think it's a, a really good and effective way to build a brand quickly with little, little resource necessarily. Because you're not, I would imagine, I mean, I, you don't have to divulge this, but I would imagine most of these athletes are coming to you because they want to be more comfortable in their own wear, not because they're looking for endorsement deals. Exactly. I think we're really lucky that, you know, the kind of the chapter of that playbook fits really well with our product. So that we're, we're mm-hmm. kind of engaging with these athletes as customers first and as, you know, men who want more comfort throughout their wardrobe. And then we're able to layer on kind of that amplification opportunity that means so much to the broader customer base. Got it. Got it. Well, I don't know what you can divulge, but I would love to know what's next. What are you what are you working on? We try to stay pretty close to the vest and what we're working on for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I think being a small brand, we're really we're able to be really reactive. Um, to things that come up. And so sometimes, you know, we might be working on a campaign that pivots or shifts entirely. Two, we really try to utilize the element of surprise. So we try to have things really fully baked before we launch them. It's a bit different than what you might see with a big brand, but it allows us to kind of maximize the impact of that surprise to kind of be fully prepared with something before we launch it out. I think going back to the um, Phil Mickelson ad, we had, you know, a series of GIFs and responses and, you know, social war room really set up before we launched anything. And we planned for that to be a back to back to back launch series where, you know, we worked with a, a reporter that we have a great relationship with to kind of launch the news in the morning. And then in the afternoon, the um, TV spot went live. And between that, we were really able to kind of seed out the assets into the world. And it just allows for that kind of full full view and full coverage of something that I think were we to seed it out over time might lose some of its potency. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So keeping it close to the vest. Gotcha. Well, let's switch gears because I've enjoyed talking about Mizzen and Maine, but I love to also get to know the person behind the, the brand a little bit as well. And 
I enjoy this question. I hope you do too, which is, is there been an experience in your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I think this is a great question. And when I, when I really think back on it, I think there's less of an experience and more kind of a set of people. And I hope this doesn't sound too nerdy to say, but it's really been my parents, you know, in part just because they were great parents who were really supportive in both education and in life. But also I can trace back mm-hmm. a lot about how I approach my job to them. My mom is a writer and a, she's just very creative and just genuinely very passionate about human stories. And I think that's where I learned to love consumer psychology. She also has the most exceptional attention to detail, something that I strive for and I will probably never hit. But, you know, growing up, she'd throw these really thoughtful events, you know, even small dinner parties or birthday parties had so much thought put into them. And to this day, she, you know, she does finds ways to put small touches in a really meaningful way into everything she does, whether it's having a really nicely wrapped present or, you know, every time I stay at my parents' house now, she'll pick a flower, like gardenias if they're blooming or whatever, you know, is, is kind of active in their garden to put in a vase by my bed. And that's just a very special touch that creates this whole sense of experience around everything that she does. And I think that attention to detail is so important in marketing because every touch point really builds or detracts from your brand. There's not a lot of neutral space there. So making sure that you're thinking about the consumer experience in every possible way, whether it's a Facebook ad or the packaging that they get when they order from your store or the follow-up emails that they get, you know, asking them to review their product or solving a customer service issue, like those are all really critical. And I think um, my dad kind of on the on the kind of balancing end of the spectrum as an entrepreneur. And um, seeing his work ethic throughout my life was super inspiring, but also his company is in sales, which I think translates to this, you know, very strong focus on results that's becoming more and more important in marketing. And there's this traditional thought of marketing being, you know, maybe not necessarily fluffy, but not as quantifiable as it is today. And I think that, you know, measurements and results are just becoming more and more critical as our tools to capture them become more sophisticated. So that balance is you know, something that I feel really set me up well for the way marketing is growing today and the way that my job looks and just so grateful for it. That's fantastic. It sounds like, I mean, they, it was the perfect ingredients to get you where you were <laughs> to have those parents. Yeah, I think so. They were just really supportive. I think another thing that's kind of interesting in my background is that I'm super shy. I find a lot of confidence in numbers and being able to kind of make data-driven decisions on things. And so I think kind of combining those with that um, has just been extremely helpful in where I am today. Oh, that's great. That's it's pretty interesting too. I mean, um, cause you're working for a brand that is not shy, by yeah. the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, um, well, what advice would you give your younger self if you were doing this all over again? Probably the same advice that I give myself today, which is to take the risk. I, t- I think to some degree that kind of that love and that comfort in numbers can lead to reticence and, and taking risks in the right way. And while I think it's really good to be calculated and careful and kind of assigning metrics to things that might seem a little bit riskier, to some degree, you have to jump on arbitrage opportunities um, in order to get those outsized gains and returns. And Mizzen and Maine is just a really great example of that because I think we have an organization of people who are comfortable and excited about risk. And so we're able to really push the envelope on things and, you know, doing so in a thoughtful way 
but doing things that other brands might not do. And that allows us a broader share of conversation and relevance with our consumers that I think is really helping propel us forward. Interesting. Well, what fuels you? What drives you? What keeps you going? I am a card carrying nerd. <laughs> so I love you know diving into data, <laughs> finding and using patterns that drive decisions. And I think one of the best feelings is proving out a hypothesis and something that's structured or at least quantitative. And so I think that's driven a lot of my my decisions and my courses of action today. Um, so, you know, my decision to go to HBS, my decision to go into CPG, and then uh, my decision to move toward a company where that access to data is so strong and so immediate. I think that's something that, you know, really drives me and that I've gotten so much reward out of working for Mizzen and Maine. I love the feeling of, you know, hopping onto Google Analytics and seeing the results of an ad campaign come through in real time, comparing, you know, how organic traffic is coming through with what we projected, looking at trends, you know, even being able to see the impact of certain ad campaigns on the demographics of consumers that are visiting our site is such a rewarding and just cool experience. Right. Uh, uh, I've tracked my own, you know, analytics on websites and things like that it can be addictive too. you launch something new and you're like watching every, every tick of the counter go up. <laughs> I don't know. It's so true. It's very addictive. Yeah. I think it's one of those yeah. things that will probably is you probably understand well as a marketer, you have to create some distance on sometimes like you have <laughs> put the laptop down right. and, you know, engage with your friends and family. And, but it, it is very gratifying. Yeah. I need one of those like blockers that like cuts me off from the <laughs> internet for a couple hours a day or something. <laughs> That's awesome. Like no more Google analytics for you. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, a couple more questions. You know, marketers tend to be kind of students of other things that are going on around, around them, uh, whether they're working on it or, you know, things they see in the world. Are there any brands or companies or causes that you think other people should take notice of or that you follow? That's a great question. I think brands that have, you know, nailed differentiation and experience across touch points are really the ones that are going to be strong ones for us to continue to watch. One great example of this is Away. And I think they're an interesting example because they are not necessarily a new brand in the landscape of D2C, but they've managed to build re relevance and really, you know, continue to drive that over time. Their product looks very different. And, you know, I don't know to what degree the actual differentiation of their product is like i don't know how different an away suitcase really might be from a to me but it looks very identifiable when you go through the airport you start to see the people that you like and respect carrying the suitcase and it, it means something and it stands for something i visited their new york store a little while ago and you know i think one of the things that i found interesting there was that they'd created this whole lounge around travel so not only are they kind of differentiated in what their product looks like, but they're diving into this relevance with consumer along the idea of travel, which is something that we know is so important to millennials and to the generation behind us. They have travel books. They have a little travel lounge. Um, it's almost this mecca of you know people who really enjoy that experience. And I think leaning into that level of relevance in a way that's very expensive because retail in New York and, you know, in that district that they're in is, I know, very pricey on a square foot basis, really helps them stand for something that means something to their consumers. 
That's a great example. Well, last question for you. What do you see the future of marketing looking like? Oh, it could go in so many directions. And, you know, I'm humbled thinking back to college <laughs> when I thought about what a career in marketing would look like. And it's just, you know, so completely different than anything I could have imagined. But I do think <laughs> one of the really driving forces is going to be stronger divergence between commoditized and differentiated purposes. Amazon can be a great tool, but it can also sustain this sort of race to the bottom in terms of commoditization. That so-called infinite shelf, essentially the idea that visual consideration set is no longer limited to the confines of a retailer's physical shelf set with all of the barriers and protections that that implies, you know, makes tools that have traditionally worked in big brands' favors less impactful. For instance, when I search barbecue potato chips on a platform like Amazon, there's likely to be substantially more options returned to me for consideration. And brand recall matters a little bit less when factors like price and reviews are presented in that format. So while visual factors like packaging are still important, big brands are overall less able to purchase their way to the top of the consideration set without the costly and effective premiums like slotting fees for the ideal shelf set or end caps that you know literally intercept a consumer during their shopping journey. So that commoditization just becomes much more rapid without those factors kind of you know, helping separate along the way. But on the flip side, I also think there's going to be higher expectations from consumers for things that they consider differentiated or premium. And part of this comes from the increasing standards of transparency and trust. Um, also, part from the level of responsiveness that D2C brands are now able to display for consumer preferences and feedback. As a consumer, you now have this higher level of expectation for personalization, for response time. You want to be able to see products that are kind of curated for you, that are designed to meet your needs. And you also want to be able to connect with a brand on any issues that you might have at any hour of the day. You know, it's, it's difficult, I think, to some degree, con- sending an email instead of chatting with a brand now feels like a barrier, where in the past, you might have a a landline that you had to call during certain hours of the day. So that expectation is getting a lot harder. And I think that you know that's a really exciting place to play when you can be differentiated on product and experience and just building something that you know means so much to the consumer and creates just that positive value through the strong experience that you're providing. Interesting. I love it. I love it. Uh, very, I think very wise to the, the Amazon effect is real. Um, there's lots of companies trying to figure that out. And, and especially now with the introduction of voice, the infinite shelf or the, the sliding fees, I can only imagine what they will be if you want to be the second option to Amazon basics on voice search when I need batteries, as an example. <laughs> yeah, that's a great thought with voice too. It's going to be so interesting to see what that does. Yeah, it's, it's, I, think, I think they've changed the game for themselves and may not even know it yet. So it's, it's kind of interesting. But I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk with you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. and You can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. 
There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now.